flipping back to it, but just dropping us off back in maybe the mood or the tone that it set for us leading up to this week and the text that we're going to be in this morning. Gloom, anguish, darkness, despair, oppression, brokenness, left with nothing but hope, left with nothing but hope in something better, in a coming Messiah, hope in a coming Savior, hope in Jesus Christ. And with that hope in mind, let's stand together as I read and you follow along Matthew 1, 18 through 25. Uh, once I get into the actual teaching of these verses, we're going to look at verses 1 through 17 too, but I did not want y'all to have to stand while I struggle through all of the names included in the genealogy. So let's, let's read verses 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, you are so good. Father, this morning as we read and teach and receive and meditate on these verses, these verses that proclaim, that herald your son's birth, Father, I pray that you would uh, give me the ability to teach it, that you would uh, allow all of us to receive it, that you would open our hearts and minds uh, to receive it so that we can learn from, from it, but not just learn from it, so that we can also apply it to our lives and meditate on it day and night and let it to mold and shape our lives. Let it mold and shape the way that we view you, the way that we view our King, Jesus, and the way that uh, we, we uh, go throughout the rest of our lives, um, continuing to worship you and making your name known. So, Father, as we do this now, I pray that uh, you would do these things and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And you all can be seated. Hope, if you have not caught on already, hope is going to be the center point of this message. If you're one who takes notes and puts titles on your paper, Hope Fulfilled would be the title of my sermon. Hope Fulfilled. Hope, by definition, is a feeling of expectation and desire for a certain thing to happen. Hope is the most powerful emotion or thing, I would even stretch it that far, or thing that one can possess. It is what moves us along in every aspect of our lives. Thinking secularly, I hope to graduate, to get a job, to make money, to provide for a family. That is what moves us along through school, through our education, and through the jobs that we 
uh, possess, a hope to win, to make it to the next level, to be the best is what moves an athlete uh, or a musician to practice, to train, to endure. I hope to defend our country's freedoms and fight for the freedom around the world is what moves an individual to join the military. Hope is what led the disciples to drop their vocations and follow Jesus. Peter, James, and John walked away from their professions as fishermen, or at least the amount of time that they had to devote to that profession. They walked away from that because of their hope in the one that called them. Matthew, the the writer of the gospel that we are reading, he uh, walked away from his life as a tax collector because of the hope that he had in Jesus who called him. Hope led Zacchaeus up the tree to listen to Jesus' teachings. And then hope led Zacchaeus to follow Jesus once he came down from the tree. Uh, Hope is very powerful. Hope can also be dangerous if your hope is in the wrong thing. If you've ever walked past Ginger Ford and I having a conversation, more than likely it's about uh, the latest Marvel movie or the Marvel TV show out. We both really love Marvel, and now with Disney Plus pumping out Marvel movies and Marvel TV shows pretty much every single week, we get plenty of content to talk about. I love Marvel movies, and I'm going to see or watch most all of them that come out. And Marvel, whenever they kind of, it wasn't the beginning of their journey, but the greatest thing in my opinion that they did is they came up with a series of 22 movies that expanded from the time of 2008 to 2019 that all worked together, that led up to one final battle between all of the Avengers that all had their own movies and the big bad, the mad titan Thanos that was behind the scenes at work, behind all the other villains uh, that existed in the Marvel universe. And Thanos was a great villain. We were led to really dislike him because he was so powerful. But what also made him a great villain is the movies led the viewer to believe in the cause that he believed in. Not so much to get on board with it, but to at least show you that he really believed in what he was doing. And Thanos' idea, his motive, is that he saw uh, the, the poverty. He saw the needs all around not only our world, but the universe. Remember, this is a, a fictional universe. So all around the universe, he saw the need. He saw the despair. He saw the heartbreak. And the solution that he came to was that if he could just wipe out half of the universe's population, that everything would be okay. That the resources throughout the universe would finally be able to sustain everyone that existed in it if he could wipe out half of the population. That is a terrible thing to hope for or hope in, but nonetheless, he did. Hope can be dangerous. I mean, throughout our our world's history, you can look at a lot of the, uh, the villains of our world. I mean, Adolf Hitler, he had hope in something. It was making his name, his nation, great. Um, That is a bad thing to hope in, but nonetheless, he had hope in that, so hope can be dangerous. The loss of hope can create greater despair and depression than one can imagine. More often than not, when somebody takes their own life, it is because of their loss of hope, the feeling that everything is wrong and nothing will get better. But the finding of hope, the obtaining of hope, the fulfillment of of hope leads to unimaginable joy, unimaginable joy, joy that the world cannot match and joy that the world cannot even comprehend. Ladies and gentlemen, fellow Christians in the room, our hope for a Savior has been fulfilled. It was fulfilled in a manger in Bethlehem some 2,000 
years ago. Jesus is the fulfillment of our hope. So as we look at Matthew 1, I believe there are three places or three uh, points, I guess, uh, in which we find hope fulfilled in Jesus. Number one is hope is fulfilled in the genealogy of Jesus. Number two, hope is fulfilled in the birth of Jesus. And number three, hope is fulfilled in the names of Jesus. So let's look at each of these one by one. Number one, hope is fulfilled in the genealogy of Jesus. This is verses 1 through 17. So I know this is a large chunk of text, and this is a portion of text that I'm more than likely going to struggle with, so y'all just bear with me. I looked up a lot of the pronunciations of these different names, and if you look up 10 different pronunciations of some of these, you'll get 10 different pronunciations. So y'all just bear with me as we, as we read these. The genealogy of Jesus Christ. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The son of David the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Abimadad, and Abimadad the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Oet, of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of uh, Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. So the genealogy of Jesus brings us hope by qualifying Jesus to be the Messiah, revealing God's commitment to his promises, and displaying God's grace to sinners. Now, I hope I don't lose you all in my points and my subpoints here. These would be subpoints. So, if I refer to them as points, just know that I'm talking about subpoints that go along with the overall point here that hope is fulfilled in the genealogy of Jesus. So, my subpoints number one, qualifies Jesus to be the Messiah. Number two, reveals God's commitment to his promises. And three, displays God's grace. To sinners. So number one here, sub-point number one, the genealogy qualifies Jesus to be the Messiah. The very reason Matthew included this genealogy was to show that Jesus is who he claimed to be later on in his ministry. The promised Messiah, God in flesh, 
from the line of Abraham and David. Matthew is often, Matthew the gospel, is often considered the gospel for the Jews. Jews were students of the Old Testament. They knew who the Messiah was supposed to be. They knew the prophecies and they knew their family trees. Matthew very wisely includes this genealogy to prove all of his to all of his readers that Jesus does in fact qualify to be the promised Messiah. He is the son of David. He is the son of Abraham. And he is the son of every other individual that was included in this genealogy. Next, the genealogy reveals God's commitment to his promises. The very first thing, or excuse me, the first verse of this genealogy mentions three names. Jesus, David, and Abraham. The reason for mentioning David and Abraham was not because they were important in and of themselves, because we know that they were ordinary sinners like you and I. Yes, one was a king, one was the father of many nations. I'll talk a little more about that in just a second. But other than that, they are normal, sinful men. They are mentioned because God made very big, very specific promises with them and showed grace to them. To Abraham, God promised in Genesis that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars and that through his offspring, all of the nations of earth would be blessed. To David, God promised that a descendant of his would reign on the throne over the people of God forever, for all of eternity. Both of these promises were fulfilled in Jesus. He is the one who has blessed and will bless all of the nations of the earth, and he is the one who will reign on the throne forever, for all of eternity. Lastly, the genealogy displays God's grace to sinners. If you exclude Jesus' name from the list, there is something that every other name mentioned in these 17 verses in this genealogy have in common. And that, that, that's that they don't deserve to be there. They don't deserve to be included in God's plan and God's purposes, just as you and I don't deserve to be included in God's plans and God's purposes. They do not deserve to be there. But we have a gracious God who chooses to use sinners like you and me and David and Abraham and everybody else that's included in this genealogy. God chooses to use us because of his grace. We've already talked about Abraham and David. We, we've at least mentioned them. Abraham's lack of faith led him to lie and try to sidestep God's promise by taking things into his own hands, right? Right? Uh, Abraham was uh, eventually considered a faithful man, but before he was considered a faithful man, he was a very faithless man, and his sin led him to take some very dramatic steps away from God and, and commit those sins. Uh, David was considered a man after God's own heart, but uh, although he was considered a man after God's own heart, he was yet a sinner. David's pride led him to commit sexual immorality and murder, as we all know. So David and Abraham were both sinful individuals just like you and I. And some, some would consider them among the greatest of sinners. You know, Paul writes that he was the greatest of sinners, and I'm sure Abraham and David would agree with Paul that they were as well. And I want to mention that I would include myself in that list along with those three. Matthew goes on to mention many other great sinners in this genealogy. And whenever I use the word great there, I'm not talking about their greatness as in their goodness, but their 
ability to sin, the greatness of the sins in which they committed. He even mentions four Gentile women. Tamar was a Canaanite. Rahab was from Jericho. Ruth was a Moabite. Uriah's wife, as we know as Bathsheba, was likely a Hethite. Uh, so how, how in the world does any of this bring us hope? Because the people that Jesus came from are the same people that Jesus came for. The people that Jesus came from, the lineage, the genealogy that Jesus came from is the same group, the same type of people that he came to save, that he came to reconcile to himself. Jesus came to save save both men and women and use them for his glory. Jesus came to save both Jew and Gentile. Praise the Lord for us as people who are not Jewish. He came to save both Jew and Gentile and use them for his glory. Jesus came to save sinners, even the worst of them, like Abraham and David and you and I, and use us, use them for his glory. Hope is fulfilled. We can find and obtain hope in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Number two, big point number two. Hope is fulfilled in the birth of Jesus. Hope is fulfilled in the birth of Jesus. Look with me again at verses 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. The birth of Jesus brings us hope by revealing his manhood and his divinity simultaneously. There's nothing more puzzling than pondering how one being can be 100% man and 100% God, right? Because we as individuals are made up of 100%, right? I mean, if, if um, you know, if, if a... Asian man and a Caucasian lady have a child, that child will be 50% Asian, 50% Caucasian, making up 100%. So we oftentimes try to work Jesus into that same formula, but he's not of the same thing that we're of. So he could be 100% and 100% or 1 million percent and 1 million percent or infinity, infinity, because he is God. There's nothing more pondering than that, and there's also nothing more amazing. Either of those truths, Jesus being just man or just God, either of those truths without the other would not be good news for us. If Jesus were simply man, he would be nothing more than a good teacher. And if Jesus were simply divine, he could not have atoned for our sins. Yet he was fully man 
and fully God. So let's break down how each of these truths or what each of these truths mean for us and how each of them bring us hope. First, Jesus was fully man. Verse 18 says, Now the birth of Jesus took place in this way. Now we know that Jesus has existed with the Father and the Holy Spirit for all of eternity. Right? John 1.1 says, In the beginning was the Word. So Jesus was not born in a sense that He came into existence. Uh, so, so what does it mean? It means that He left His divine heavenly nature to take on human flesh and be born from a woman just as you and I. There's nothing more humbling than pondering on the God of the universe taking on flesh to become man. And not just a man, but a baby. And not just a baby, but a seed within Mary's belly. As Chaney and I await our first child, one of my favorite parts of the, the process each and every week as we go along is checking the app to see what size fruit our baby is. Um, you know, it starts off saying your baby is the size of a blueberry, and you can check it a couple weeks later, and all of a sudden your baby's the size of a lemon and works its way up to an eggplant and a coconut and a watermelon, right? Uh, so so uh, we had an appointment last week, and the doctor was finally able to, to measure the baby, and she told us how many centimeters long and how much she weighs, and I said, Doc, that means nothing to me. I said, compared to a fruit, and I'll know how big you're talking about, but I, I don't know centimeters that well, and pounds, whenever they get that small, they're, they're kind of hard to put together too, so let's just stick to the, to the fruit uh, comparisons, and, I, and I'll be able to keep up with you. Um, so, so Jesus, the king of the universe, he was a seed within Mary's belly. And then he turned from a seed to a blueberry. And of course, y'all know I'm not talking literally. I, I hope I'm not presenting this as too comical. Uh, and then, you know, he, he, he grew and he grew and he grew. Uh, J.I. Packer writes it this way. The Almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby, needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other child. The babyhood of the Son of God was a reality. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as the truth of the incarnation. It's so amazing to, to ponder on that and, and, and ponder on the humility of Christ to take on such a situation. Jesus was a baby. He went through every stage of life that each of us go through ourselves so that he could fully identify with us. Another one of my favorite things to think about is the fact that Jesus could have come as a full-grown man. He could have uh, triumphed from heaven on a white horse as a man and, and conquered sin in whatever way he wanted to, but he did not choose to do it in that way. He came as a baby to be born as you and I, to take on every life stage that you and I have taken on ourselves and will take on to fully identify with us. Jesus was not just a man, however. He was also divine. I apologize for reading these verses so many times, but I think there's a lot more truth in these verses than I can communicate from my own words. So I'm going to read through a couple of these once again and highlight where it talks about his divine becoming, his divine conception. Now the birth of Jesus Christ, this is in verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, 
resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. That's the third time that uh, Matthew, in recording this, has mentioned a phrase talking about the miraculous conception. Okay, skipping down to verse 23. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This passage could not be more clear that Jesus was divinely conceived. There are at least five phrases in this passage alone that suggest that for us. So why is that so important? Why is this miraculous virgin conception so important for us as the readers today and anyone all throughout history? First, the virgin birth is a sign. Isaiah 7.14 says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Remember, at the beginning of this, we talked about uh, the Jewish students of the Old Testament that, that knew the prophecies well. They knew what to look for. They knew the lineage to track. They knew the family trees to look at, but they also knew the signs to look for. Uh, Justin read for us where, where Jesus was going to be born. They knew to look for that. They knew that Jesus was going to be born of a virgin. So the first reason that this is important is this was the sign to the world that this is the promised Messiah. This is the one who has been prophesied for so long now. He is the Christ, the Messiah. That is the first reason... Let me find my place again. Sorry about that. Next, if Jesus were born of man like you and I, he would have inherited the original sin of Adam that we are all born with, right? We, we, we don't become sinners once we sin. We sin because we are born sinners. The last thing I want to believe about my daughter when she is born is that she's a no-good, rotten sinner, right? But her father is me, and because I am her father, she is going to be a sinner because I'm her father, and because of all of her fathers before her that pass on through her lineage, all the way back to Adam. We have all traced down, we have all passed down uh, the, the, the sin problem that we all possessed, but Jesus did not possess that. Jesus did not possess that. He was born perfect. He was born sinless. He was born holy because his father is holy. And that leads me to my last sub-point here. Jesus was born with God as his father, making him God in flesh. Once again, I don't want to correlate him being born with him coming into existence. He has always existed with the father, but he is begotten. He comes as the Son of God, displaying God's goodness, His grace, His power, and His love. He is divine. He is God. Hope is fulfilled in the birth of Jesus. And lastly, hope is fulfilled in the names of Jesus. Verse 21, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, 
and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. The names of Jesus bring us hope by revealing the love that God has for us, by revealing the love of God to us. There are two names divinely given to Christ in these verses, Jesus and Emmanuel. And each name or, or description reveals much about who Jesus is and what he came to accomplish or what he came to do. First in verse 21, the angel said to Joseph, You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus translates to Yahweh is salvation. Now this was a pretty common name at the time, and it's still a pretty common name in other cultures around the world today. We don't hear it very often in our modern American culture, but it's still a pretty common name. Uh, whenever Chaney and I lived in Pascagoula and I was uh, teaching middle school, I, I had a student named Jesus, and it was spelled just like Jesus, J-E-S-U-S. And sometimes I felt guilty whenever I called him by his name. I almost felt uh, like I was uh, committing a sin for doing that. But it, it was a common name, and, it, and it's okay. That was the given name to Jesus. Yahweh is salvation. There's one very distinct difference, however, between Jesus possessing this name and anyone else in history possessing this name. When another individual possesses this name, they are communicating that Yahweh saves, that their God saves. When Jesus possessed it, however, he was communicating that I am Yahweh and I will save my people from their sins. Brothers and sisters, this is a beautiful reminder that Christ began his earthly life with the end of his earthly life in mind. There is no salvation apart from the birth of Jesus. There is no salvation apart from the life of Jesus. There is no salvation apart from the death of Jesus, and there is no salvation apart from the resurrection of Jesus. Through faith in his now-finished work, you can be saved from your sins. Jesus, Yahweh, is salvation. Next, verse 23, quotes Isaiah 7. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Emmanuel was not the name that uh, Jesus was given to go by. Like it, they, they were not communicating uh, to, to Mary and Joseph call him Emmanuel from day to day, right? That, that was Jesus. That was the name given to him. But Emmanuel was more of a description, a declaration of who he was and who he came to be. Emmanuel means God with us. This is not a very uncommon thing to think about for us as Christians today. We pray for it often, right? We pray for God to be with us. We sing it often. One of my favorite songs that Jared has introduced me to is Christ be all around me, above and below me, before and behind me, Christ be all around me. So we think about Christ being with us in that sense as well. Uh, the, the, the end of Matthew, the very last words uttered in the gospel of Matthew uh, after Jesus commissions his disciples, he, he, he tells them uh, that he will be with them always until the end of the age. He will be with them. All of these are both true and very comforting to us. Christ is all around us and Christ will be with us Always, those are true, but there is something a little different communicated in Isaiah 7 and Matthew 1 when it, is, when it is said in those places. 
When the prophet and the angel said, God be with you, they meant in the flesh. That literally, God will be with you. Jesus was quite literally God with us. When he spoke, it was God speaking. When he performed miracles and displayed his power, it was God displaying his power. When he had compassion for others, it was God having compassion for others and showing them his loving nature and his loving kindness. When he taught and instructed and commanded, it was God teaching, instructing, and commanding. God was with us through Jesus Christ, and God is with us today because of Jesus Christ and our reconciliation through Him. Christians should have no greater desire than to be with God, and God made that possible through Jesus Christ. Hope is fulfilled in the names of Jesus. That wraps up our three big points. Hope is fulfilled in the genealogy of Jesus. Hope is fulfilled in the birth of Jesus. And then, as we just finished, hope is fulfilled in the names of Jesus. I want to leave us with just a a couple points of application. First, to the lost soul in here, uh, in in a room this size. Um, You cannot help but assume that there is someone in here that does not know Christ, that has no hope in Christ. So if you were here this morning and you do not have the hope that I have discussed from God's Word this morning, I invite you, or better yet, Scripture invites you to put your hope in God. Yes, Jesus the Messiah has already come, but without Him, we're still in the same boat that Israel was in thousands of years ago. Brokenness, gloom, anguish, darkness, despair, oppression. Christ came to be born of a woman, born as a baby, to renew all things, including your heart. Charles Spurgeon quotes, In the manger, there he lies. Bow the knee and kiss the Son of God. Accept him as your Savior, for he puts himself into that manger that you may approach him. Christ was not, you know, whenever we tell the Christmas story, we all often think about Mary and Joseph being ran out of town all the way down to a stable, and Jesus had to be born in a manger because he was helpless. God was helpless in that way, but that's, that's not the case. God sovereignly orchestrated uh, every, every detail of this story. He put himself in that manger that you may approach him. Would you approach him this morning if you were not a believer in Jesus Christ, would you approach him this morning and would you put your hope in him? Next to my brothers and sisters in Christ, if you have bowed the knee to Christ already and have submitted your life completely to him, don't forget. Don't forget. Christmas, you know, as the holiday, that only comes around once a year. The trees, the lights, the decorations, all of those things only come once a year. But the birth of Christ, his incarnation, his life, his death, his resurrection, those things are eternal, and we should meditate on those gracious truths day and night. We should think about uh, the truth that God would gift us his son in flesh so that we might live, so that we might live for eternity. Lastly, I'm going to leave you all with the same charge that I left the kids with a couple weeks ago. 
If you believe that Jesus was God in flesh, that he lived, that he died, and that he resurrected so that we might be saved and reconciled to God and so that anybody else who believes might be saved and reconciled to God, go and tell it on the mountain. Uh, I, I love that song, especially when the kids sing it. Not so much when I sing it myself, but when the kids sing it, it's beautiful. But I love that song, and that's what we should do. We should go and tell the world that Jesus Christ has been born so that we may approach him and be saved and reconciled to God. So I charge you, church, to do that this morning. Let's pray. God, once again, you, you are so good. Uh, we... Thank you for the gift that is Jesus Christ. Uh, Father, apart from him, we, we have no hope. We are left in hopelessness, in brokenness, in anguish, in gloom, and darkness. We are left in that state apart from Christ. Father, I, I, I'm aware, I know we're all aware that there are many around us in our community, many around the world, probably even some in this room that are in that stage of life, that are in darkness, that have no hope. Father, I pray that you would open their eyes and their hearts to who you are and to your goodness and to your power, and that through your power, God, that you would save them. Father, help us to meditate on these truths day and night. You are a gracious God. Only you, only a gracious God, would stoop to the level that you stooped to leave heaven, to take on flesh, to be born of a woman and live the life as a baby and then a child and go through the struggles that we as humans go through whenever you did not have to, but you chose to because of your love for us. So Father, help us to meditate on that day and night and help us to respond to that each and every day by giving up our lives and laying our lives down at your cross and following you. So Father, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.